my job is to introduce the lecturer. And, of course, the first thing you always say is he needs no introduction. And um, I would be inclined to say that, except in this case, I get particular and peculiar pressure in reading out this very short synopsis of, um, of uh, Sir George's um, career in aviation. Uh, the reason will become obvious. Uh, in 1935, he joined Vickers Armstrong at uh, Weybridge, I having departed that organisation some years before, so we didn't meet. <coughs> in 1940, he became Experimental Works Manager at Weybridge. So did I, up at Cheddarton. In 1945, he became Chief Designer at Weybridge. So did I, up at Cheddarton. <laughs> in 1948, he became a Special Director, and I never achieved that, uh, <laughs> that rank. He's... Um, past chairman of British Aircraft Corporation and there are a whole lot of things here but the important thing is he got the George Taylor gold medal in 1948 British gold medal for aeronautics in 1952 the Daniel Guggenheim medal in 1959 and he was the president of this society and I don't know whether his progress brought him down here for a branch meeting in 1957-58 he's now chairman and managing director of British Aircraft Corporation I'm sure we're all looking forward to the lecture from Sir George, which I gather is going to take a pretty personal touch. Sir George. I'm delighted to be here. Should have been here a year ago. But... Uh, in the best traditions of the aircraft business when uh, some surgeon chaps decided that uh, I needed a doing over they didn't get it right the first time and had to do it twice it took a hell of a lot longer than it was programmed to do cost a great deal more but hopefully as with uh, the aircraft business at the end of it all, it's proved to be right. I'm uh, jolly pleased to uh, be here with the present president of the Aeronautical Society because, as he's already said, our paths followed parallel courses. The aeroplanes that he had to make were a bloody sight easier than the ones that I had to make, I might say. Uh, and I spent a good, a good many uh, interesting hours up on that uh, great rubber press at Chatterton, trying to get the most extraordinary looking things shaped like um, hockey sticks in torment off of them because this was the way at that particular time that the particular organisation to which I belonged had decided aeroplanes were going to be de designed. And I must say, when I saw the more ordinary approach to the problem that Roy Chadwick uh, inflicted, I, uh, well, it was jolly cold up there, but the, the circumstances were such that I could very easily have decided that the north was preferable to the south. However, we, we soldiered on, and uh, we've cried on one another's shoulders a good many times in the years that have gone by, and I've no doubt we shall do so a good many more. I think, roughly speaking, my flow of language largely was drawn from him, I think that's... Uh, <laughs> I think we're reasonable competitors in expressing ourselves what they call colourfully. 
Now, I'm mightily honoured to be asked to do this, um, and uh, I looked at uh, the lecture that R.V. Jones gave um, when he inaugurated this Tizard Memorial Lecture, and it was a magnificent um, survey of the man's career, and uh, it's therefore no part of my job to retrace that. I didn't have too much to do with Tizard, because most of the time that he was uh, performing, uh, the role that I occupied was a sort of a handmaiden, maybe a maiden isn't quite the right word, but the hand part of it certainly was, where I used to trot round carrying the bags of the chaps who really had the message to convey. But what I did see of him and what I knew of him, um, he was a, a, a quite outstanding person, um, was a classical example of a a real scientist who really got his head down and got into the meat of things. And although I know it's a bit like, um, you know, uh, as you get older, the policemen look like boys, um, I began to think to myself when I looked at the names that were performing in that span of time, particularly like the five years before the war and during, when I looked at those names, by golly, there really were a lot of giants at that time, and uh, one of Tizard's great jobs um, was to harness them. And if I can find the... Oh. You'll now be delighted to know you're going to be plunged in darkness. Um, that, to remind those of you who knew him, uh, is Tizard, and those of you who didn't, uh, I think that's a that really is a magnificent face, and he was a quite magnificent man. I don't know whether old Victor Rothschild is going to carry the same sort of torch these days, but uh, it's an interesting speculation. I support Rothschild mainly, but that's not what I'm here about. Now, I think that it's. Um, a fair old job to give a lecture when you've settled the title long before you know what you're going to do. And uh, you might very well find yourself here till breakfast time in actual fact because we've got a lot to get through. Most of it is completely irrelevant. It's almost entirely disjointed. Here and there it has some bearing on the general business in which we find ourselves, but I've not allowed that to interfere with my freedom of action too much. And like another famous president of the Royal Aeronautical Society, famous like the present president, I mean, not like me. Good Lord. Having <laughs> <laughs> the marvels of modern science, absolutely astounding. And uh, this large past president, he always took the view that the one thing you never wanted to confuse yourself with or allow to inhibit your freedom of action were the facts. And I don't propose to either. Now, a rough idea of what we're going to get at in a minute between us, and uh, you're going to stay in darkness until it's all over, and I shall give a great shout about two minutes before I put the lights up. Um, and uh, the rough idea of what I'm going to get at is to, roughly speaking, give a sort of a 
survey or recital or whatever you want to call it of uh, how we're doing in the UK aerospace business and then um, sort of having constructed myself a kind of launching pad so to speak by going over a bit of history and what we're at then maybe I will get my coordinates set for somewhere or the other and get myself on the launching pad and uh, if I don't fire off a few rockets they will at least be a few odd bits of well-meant advice which at my age I feel absolutely entitled to do that, that there ain't much you can do when you're as old as I am and giving, a, giving advice is one of the most useless and therefore <laughs> one of the things which one takes greatest uh, interest in now a thousand years ago as the president has reminded us I was president of the Aeronautical Society and uh, in those days, and I don't know if they still do it, there was a ritual that was called a presidential address and I fell for this and this slide really is a crystallization of uh, the presidential address which if I remember rightly was called Speed in Transport. And as you might imagine, although this is as far back as 1958, it was, as all my public utterances have been before and since, a plug for our business. But in the course of uh, working out what it was that I was going to do, I was very surprised to find that as soon as places got joined together by transport that enabled the distance to be covered in 12 hours, there was a, a, a sharp increase in the amount of trade between the places, between population and so on. There, there seemed to be some magic that as soon as places got within 12 hours journey time, um, a hell of a lot happened between them. And uh, this really is a summation of that thing in that in 1690 uh, a character on an old nag could reasonably be expected to cover that sort of area and then in 1890 with uh, a train or a ship and God above knows what sort of ship that's supposed to be but nevertheless it, you, you can tell by the waves it's a ship you could get round that far and then in 1940 this vintage of aeroplane enabled you to get that far and then in 1960 the subsonic jet enabled you to get that far and with a bit of license at that time uh, and, and that wasn't in there because in 1958 um, it wasn't over clear what that was going to look like um, I did venture to say that I thought that from 75 onwards uh, a supersonic civil aeroplane would enable you to cover the rest of the world that you really could do anywhere to anywhere in 12 hours well, in actual practice, in 1975, you won't because sonic boom, the need to stop and refuel and so on will make it more like 15 than 12. But with a bit of license and that being turned into 1985, maybe, I think the probability is that you've got up to the stage where the 12-hour journey time with the aid of a supersonic aeroplane uh, is, is going to be... Uh, is going to be within reach and that uh, I, I'm really putting that up 
um, A, to remind myself of the fact that there was a time 14 years ago when I was respectable enough to be president of the Aeronautical Society and the fact that I believe that the same basic facts of life that stimulated me to do that lecture and draw those conclusions, I believe that they are still there. But what this is really is a, it, it's a fairly... It's a fairly simple pictorial uh, recognition of the fact that getting from London to Sydney in the days of a ship like that took a hundred, in the days of a ship like that took thirty, in the 1920s, 1930s, then the flying boat got it down to like five days, then the subsonic jet got it down to like thirty hours in 1960, and then here is a more realistic assessment in the middle 70s supersonic transport like the Concorde will get it down to something over 15 hours allowing for stops, sonic booms and all the rest of it. Here you've got a rejuvenation of uh, the various um, vehicles, um, high-speed tracked and untracked that are now um, in the mill which I think may have a quite significant effect on certain parts of uh, the aircraft manufacturing business. Here you've got the speeds of these devices with this contraption somewhere between three and 400 miles an hour. And then out here there's a rather shadowy figure that is supposed to be a Concorde development in the later years following uh, the basic aeroplane. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I find it almost impossible to conceive uh, any passenger transport that is going to be materially different from what these things can do uh, within the year 2000. I think that there is a, a plateau that's been reached for the next 30 years that will be met by a supersonic transport within the Mark III regime and uh, I think more likely um, it isn't going to get much nearer Mark III than Mark 2.2. Now, um, this operation of the Concorde on the London-Sydney route can look something like this, and this is one of the projects that have been done on behalf of Qantas with the Concorde. Now, you can do another one like BOAC might do in which they stop at places where the traffic that they're going to pick up is the salient feature. But I think the interesting thing about this on the London-Sydney operation is that you do subsonic across to Rome, supersonic down to Dubai, supersonic down to the edge of Malaysia, subsonic to Singapore and out of Singapore, although that bit of sea might well be supersonic. Supersonic across there down to an undefined distance away from Sydney and then subsonic into Sydney. And just as a matter of interest, although this isn't what I'm talking about, the large supersonic legs that can be taken out of Sydney to what are jolly important parts of the Pacific net also show up. Now that operation, allowing for the subsonic flying and making detours such as that one to avoid going over the land. That particular operation with the four stages that it has is uh, oh, it's about a 15.3 hour 
15.3 hour, 15 and a half hour job. And that really is the um, basis of the slide that I showed you just now showing the way that time had changed from 100, 100 days. Now this slightly communistic looking one um, is again a good old hardy annual but nevertheless I think it's worth looking at. This is passenger traffic on the North Atlantic. That black line is ship. These are passengers in millions, one, two, three. There's the era of the piston engine aeroplane up to 1957, the turboprop up to 59, the subsonic jet from 60 up to 1970. And as you see, they arrived at the same figure of about a million in 57, and the ship has tended to come away from that. And the total number of passengers has now uh, followed that pattern. Um, you see, the 12 hours that I've been going on about, and this is the time in hours, the 12 hours that I've been going on about really came into being there. And I think it's no accident that the swing up in traffic, which was sustained, um, was largely brought about by the reduction in time to the 12-hour figure. Now this, I think, is a... Um, you, you can draw all the conclusions that you like from this, and I'm going to put one or two thoughts in your mind. This is uh, scheduled revenue passengers, or at least it's passenger kilometers in thousands of millions. And you don't want to let the numbers worry you. It's the shape of the curve, I think, is the thing. These are drawn from Mikao. Um, 1950, 55, 60, 65, 70. Now that's the total figure. And there have been a few um, questions asked as to whether that curve was going to continue to go up in a fashion in which I believe is popularly described as asymptotic, or whether the curve in modern jargon was going to become a logistic curve. Now, if you wanted to get yourself a bit uh, gloomy or realistic according to whether you're an engineer or an accountant, um, you could uh, say that that curve, which is the domestic, is beginning to show all the classical signs uh, of turning over into uh, a logistic shape of curve. Uh, now it's a bit difficult to tell. There may be the restraints, you see. There may be the restraints working on the domestic uh, traffic, such as motorways and uh, faster trains and all this sort of business, congestion on um, airways, there may be the restrictions beginning to work on domestic traffic. But it's jolly dangerous to assume that a rollover, even one as pronounced as that, is in fact the start of uh, a long-term deal. Because if you'd have done this when one of the previous depressions was on, 
and here is 1955 and here is 1960 and there is 1970 and the the actual plotted dots go up that line there now there was a roll over there and if you'd fitted a logistic curve to that you in fact would have said that that was the way that the traffic was going to go whereas in actual practice that is the point at which it is and uh, if you fitted a logistic prediction to these curves here in total you would arrive at figures only a seventh or an eighth in the year 2000 of what you're going to get if you continued up that line this vertical ordinate being on a log scale now it may well be that the truth is in between and uh, that the rollover that I showed starting off on the domestic traffic just now um, might well be um, subject to that sort of uh, extrapolation because there do seem to be some of the restraints appearing on domestic short-haul traffic that in fact are not present on the long haul. Now that, roughly speaking, is an eyeful of what I would have thought the transport situation, including aeroplanes, has been like. In other words, there's been an enormous growth of traffic. There has been an enormous market of aeroplane um, stimulated by it. Um, I think the probability is that the exponential growth of the long-range traffic will effectively go on, that the present flattening out of that particular curve will prove to be a temporary flattening out and, and, and the climb will continue from that point. I'm not too sure um, about the domestic, whether in fact that rollover that you saw on the domestic uh, is going to stay rolled over or whether that in turn is going to go up. Now, when we come to look at the aircraft industry and what it's all about, apart from the products that we uh, get into and the predictions that we make, and, and what I've really been going through at the moment is a, a, a sort of a background of the predicting processes on which we have to rely in order to get ourselves uh, somewhere near right in what we're doing. The other thing you've got to make in mind of is that when you're in conflict with the cold hard world, um, how well can you do? Now, I think it's salutary of the way in which we run our business that although we've had chats up in the statistics departments of the government departments whose business it is, these figures are not available for any year later than 1969, us being now in the beginning of 1972. Um, but what it shows you is that over the years between 1963 and 1969, of the world trade in total goods, the old British um, groveled about between 12% and something under 10 in manufactured goods, we did a bit better. We ran from 
14, say, in 63, down to 10 in 69. But as far as aerospace was concerned, in recent years, we've been helping ourselves to 15%. So that the share of the market that we had grabbed in the aerospace business, compared with what the other industries had grabbed, we'd done better. We were better at it. Overseas, we were more competitive. And that seems to me to be pretty important. And I would have liked to have known for sure what the comparisons were in the last few years. But for the reasons that I've told you, I don't know and therefore neither can you. Now, when it comes to uh, exports, as that slide indicates, we don't do too badly. And when you look at the United Kingdom aerospace exports over the years, in 1965 we were down here at like 120 million. In 1968 we got up to almost 300 millions. We've been hopping either side of 300 million. 1971 was a record year of 328. Now that at first blush looks absolutely tremendous. If however you do the arithmetic that brings the content and the what that really is in terms of goods down to that figure of a 1968 value, that 328 in fact comes down to 275. So that in the same way that that was 293 million pounds worth, in terms of those pounds, that in fact is only 275. And I'm making that point, not to, uh, not in any way to decry the performance of the aircraft industry because I'm here to do the opposite, but just to stop everybody getting too fat and complacent about the fact that that was a record year because it was only a record year in terms of the pound sterling at the time and wasn't so far as the actual um, content was concerned. Now, I know that at the moment um, we are wallowing about in the wake of an enormous balance of payments uh, surplus and that that isn't any longer a problem and all the rest of it. That, of course, is, is, is entirely misleading and, and really um, absolute nonsense. And there aren't many things that one can predict with more certainty than that in something like three years' time and maybe even less, with the impact of the common market, with the domestic inflation that's going on, with the enormous efforts that will have to be made to do something about the unemployment, that there is going to be a revived balance of payments crisis in like three years' time. And all of this will be greeted um, with the same hysterical applause that it has been in the past. And we will be back in the same old panic stations of balance of payment being the end-all and be-all of the British economy. And therefore, we have to be resolute in seeing that the things that in three years and four years' time, and ten years, and fifteen years' time, that we're going to sell, 
are really capable of being sold and are really capable of holding the percentage that we have so far achieved in the world. Now, I've got to take a couple of examples at the moment just to underline um, our ability to do this and maybe the point, perhaps the path as to how to do it. Um, and in order to be strictly impartial, the first one is one of my own products and the second one isn't. This is a simple diagram. There's the 111, there's the DC9, there's the 737. 205, 111, 681, DC9, 333, 737. Now, the message, really, in service in April 65, in service in December 65, in service in December 68. The home sales, in the case of the DC-9, accounted for 55% of the total, and in the case of the 737 for 56%, and in the case of the 111, only 32. And yet we were able to get, out of that 205, we were able to get, of our total sales, 68% of the sales for export. And one of the basic reasons for that is that it appeared a bit sooner than the others and filled a need a bit quicker than the others. I think the thing that I want it to, to underline in this is that in a transport aeroplane where you've really been taking the American Vaughan in their own pitch, including selling it into their own domestic airlines, it is possible to do it even though you've got this major handicap is such a small part of your total sales that you can depend on being in the home market and the other chaps having such a big part. Well now, the Harrier, um, which was um, the product of a, a real genius of Sidney Cam in, in, in the way that he tackled it and the, um, the, the inherent simplicity of the basic design um, and the way that it has been flogged through with the persistence and determination of Bob Lickley and the others in the Hawker team that have uh, stayed with it this again you see has penetrated probably the, the, the toughest stronghold in the world to get into which is the United States defense market with the very substantial orders um, that are coming from the um, from the United States Marines and um, 114 you see already uh, ordered some already been delivered now why um, because you see they don't have anything like it there. Uh, in other words, the message is, I think, that if you've got something that does a job that somebody wants to do, and you've got it in a position in time, where it's there a bit quicker than anybody else has got it, then the United States domestic airlines and the United States military uh, are more prepared to buy it uh, than one might superficially think. And if you can break into that, you can pretty well break into anything. Now what I've tried to say so far is that um, a good export position in the past 
in the broad, I've identified two areas in which we've uh, made a bit of penetration. Now, on the on on the airframe front. Now, on the guided weapons front, um, there's no point in me going into a long rigmarole about guided weapons because I don't know enough about them. Although, as a general rule, that's a signal to speak with complete confidence. Um, <laughs> But the one thing I think that is good about the British guided weapons system at the moment is that we are essentially in a trade of smallish weapons doing a job that most countries need to have done. Uh, they're not particularly exotic. They're all pretty straightforward, smallish weapons doing a job that countries need to have done. And more important than a job that they need to have done, it's a job for which they can afford, that they can afford the money. They, they, they can buy these because they're not all that costly. And uh, I think the guided weapons export situation in this country has been strong and I believe will continue to be strong. Um, coming out of the guided weapons lark, there's been uh, efforts at um, doing satellites and even more recently there has been... Uh, exotic uh, things between ourselves and the United States on a collaborative program in what is called post-Apollo, the space shuttle, or what have you. Um, now, I'm not going to spend too much time on any of these, although I must say I'm sorely tempted to uh, wax pretty eloquent for the reasons that I've just given. But just to remind you what some of them happen to look like, um, that's rapier, which is a cheap and cheerful way of defending yourself. And a good many people have decided it's a good idea. Every now and again, we seem to decide that we don't need to, but thank God a lot of the others who get their money from oil decide that they do. This will go down in living memory. This is until set four, and uh, if we in BAC really wondered what the hell it was we were all trying to do, we now know why the Lord put us on this earth because the Intelsat 4 that was in fact assembled down at Filton was the very vehicle that gladdened all our hearts the pictures of President Nixon smiling at Cho and Lai. <laughs> and uh, the post-Apollo program of which one of the members of the audience is an absolute five-star expert. That we thought might interest you because it shows in actual fact that however difficult anybody might make it out to be and it's been funded by President Nixon to reduce unemployment in their upper Clyde to the tune of uh, 2,000 million something or the other and when it gets to 2,000 million I can't tell the difference between pounds and dollars quite frankly <laughs> um, but this shows that it isn't really worth all that money or all the fuss that people are making about it because there's nothing to it, you see. There's a Concorde, there's a 747, there's a 707, there's a Saturn V, which uh, was a device that poked the feathers on the moon, although, mind you, that's the only bit that comes back on that. And that's the jolly old post-Apollo shuttle thing in which the blue bit underneath I suppose they've got something in the back that is something like what's in the back of that. Rockets, they call them. And the device on the top 
is a red bit, you see, so it's not too bad. This, after all, is no higher than St. Paul's or Millbank Tower, and that isn't even as high, so why there's all the palaver being made about it, I can't think. I reckon there'll be lashings of test pilots queuing up to fly it, because that's the sort of thing that it's supposed to do, you see, where the, the, the slab underneath hoaks off up here into 200,000 odd feet, at, that's a marked number of 10 or something, and then the top job beetles off down there, and then in order to get this one back, and you really want to put your straps on now, you see, you come in at 4G with a bank angle of 40 degrees, wind up your flyback engines, and I am very grateful that I'm 63 and a half. <laughs> very grateful but it's very interesting for those not yet born um, to think of what they're going to be drawing now old Handel thinks that this is going to see the light of day in the 1980s but it's, it's this sort of Welsh optimism which keeps on breaking through We've been plagued with it. Welsh, Welsh era, optimistic Welsh aerodynamicists. I don't know how they always survived them all, really. <laughs> now, this, if I could only have got the 1970 and 71 figures out of this lot, this would have been right sinister. And because I can't get them, I can only sound the gypsy's warning. That's percent of world trade, and I'm still yakking on about this because we can't justify our existence unless we really get deep into this. Now that's the total European content of the world aerospace business, including the UK, and that's the UK part of it. In other words, Europe was up to 40%, came down to 30 started to rise again to 35 <coughs> And the UK percentage, as I'd already shown you, was round about 15. <coughs> now, down here <coughs> is the relative chunk of the UK against the total. And you see, the dreary part about it is that whereas that there is going on horizontally, and that has cocked up, I'll bet if I could get the figures for 1970 and 1971, the UK in relation to the rest of Europe is doing worse rather than better. I can't show you the figures. I can only sound for the benefits of the younger members of the community who are going to have to dig their way out of this morass while I'm growing this bud, that this is a problem. And the way in which the French government puts its shoulder behind the mirage wheel and all that, wherever you are anywhere around the world, for anybody who's had to compete with that situation, they know what I'm talking about. It jolly well is a problem. You think you've got an order absolutely sewn up and everybody's sitting there with the ink waiting for it to congeal so that they can put their names on the bottom of the piece of paper and over the weekend, the whole of the French government get into being and you haven't got an order at all come Monday. Now, there are all sorts of ways in which we could put that right, and there'll be four more lectures, roughly speaking, about. Now, the next one's a funny one, because you could 
you could say that my interpretation of this situation in relation to Europe is one in which you use the well-known battle cry, if you can't beat them, join them. And if you think that's spaghetti, in fact it isn't. And if you add the time, and if you like, I'll just leave that up there and stop talking while you sort it out. It'll be much less, much less tiring for all of us. But what that is, and there's no kid about this, that is the cross-weaving of the collaborative programs that are currently on the go. Take the A300B there, Hawker Fiddlers, come down there, down there you come to VFW and Fockers, down there you come into MBB, down there you come into SNEAS. Um, I don't think we caught up with Spain. Um, you take the MRCA um, up there into FIATS, up there into BAC, down there into MBB. You take the Concorde up there into BAC, down there into SNEAS. There's the Space Shuttle Program, a BAC North American Rockwell, and somewhere on here there must be a Hawker Sidley McDonnell Douglas. There's Hawker Sidley McDonnell Douglas. And so you go on, the helicopter, the helicopter collaborative programs which Westlands have with SNEAS, uh, the engine collaborative programs, the Adur and the Olympus, the guided weapons programs, not so many by a long shot as uh, engines, helicopters and aeroplanes. But that, uh, and I dare say there are a number of lesser ones that aren't yet on now, Boeing's you see in with a stole project with Fiat. Um, ourselves with MBB and uh, Saab Scania and BAC. It's a right, um, you know, it's with us. It isn't any good uh, banging our breasts and saying we don't like it, we don't want to do it. It's with us. And a lot of us a long time ago thought that it might be with us, but that it was never going to be made to work. And uh, the two that have at least got to the stage, and I don't think I need to explain that when I talk about any of these things that I've had to do with it, it isn't because I think these are any better than anybody else's, it's just that I do resist going off about things that uh, I don't know anything about. I try to go off on things that I know a bit about. And these are a couple of quick ganders that the way, you see, the way the Jaguar program has been done, that's not a bad time scale against a uninational aeroplane in actual fact. You see, the staff discussions in 65 and the definition in 65, we started chopping bits in 66 first flight in 68, eight prototypes and one pre-production aeroplane flown by 1971. That in fact is not a bad program for a supersonic combat aeroplane done in one country. And by the same token, um, the Concorde program is uh, not a bad one either. Um, these uh, 
things that look like tombstones. They are, in fact, years in fives. In other words, that's 1960. That's 55. Each one of these divisions is a year in between. So that's 55, 60, 65, 70, 75, 80. And uh, there was the memorable SDAC, uh, which old Murray and Morgan chaired with such expertise, and I've always maintained that that, um, that committee was one of the classic examples of the way that the resources of the industry and the government establishment could be harnessed to do um, a broad study in which we each contributed um, what we could best contribute. And out of that, came <coughs> the proposition to build such an aeroplane. We and uh, Sud first got to grips with it in 61 and the Anglo-French agreement was signed in 62. We uh, had a few changes of people and uh, thank God we did. Um, the early days of this uh, with, with the president of Sud of that time, it was better be anonymous, they really were a bit tedious because I thought the best thing for us to do was to beat um, Isaac Newton and he thought that the best thing to do was to promote his own political future. And the two were rarely consistent. Now, it might surprise some of you who come from Whitehall to know that quite often defeating Isaac Newton and looking after somebody's political future don't necessarily bring about the same course of action. But it is so. Fortunately, um, somewhere around about um, somewhere around about 1962, um, a little chap with twinkly eyes named Andre Pouchet was uh, brought into the act by General de Gaulle, and he had uh, commanded the Free French bomber forces during the war over here, and had been military air attaché afterwards. And he really knew what made the old British tick. And for that four years, between 62 and 66, when this thing was going to be made or broken, uh, he was the guy more than anybody else who saw that it was going to be made. Uh, he, nobody can ever pay too big a tribute to, to Pouget's role uh, in the Concorde. He um, sort of wrote rude names on somebody's garden gate and that was the end of him around about 1966. And then we had a short period there um, when it was a bit difficult to know who was training who. But uh, we, we, we survived um, under the surveillance of an ex-prefet of the parish police force. <coughs> and then more recently, in like um, the last three years, we've had... Uh, General Ziegler in charge of the uh, French end of the program who had previously initiated the uh, Jaguar when he was in Breguet and more important than that bought some of the first Viscounts off me when he was General Manager of Air France in something like 1948. So we got to the point where we flew a couple of the devices in the oh the end of two years ago now, March 69, and uh, 
we've flown a pre-production aeroplane and we're building production aeroplanes and really all that I put this on is to show that in the same way that the collaborative program got itself to the stage of prototypes being flown and production aeroplanes being built uh, this is the same and it shows that these collaborative programs are capable of being done intensely painful subject for another lecture but 420 odd flights 860 odd hours of which 239 is supersonic it's just that number more than the Americans have done Mind you, if it hadn't been a collaborative program at the end of 1964, the Labour government would have cut its throat and there wouldn't have been a program at all and we'd have been dead heating with the Americans. <laughs> collaborative programs are hell to start and almost impossible to stop. I don't um, know what we're going to do, really. When... Um, the great thing about any aeroplane is always to muck it about. This is the prototype as flying. That's the pre-production aeroplane as flying, which is a bit longer. That's the production aeroplane, which is a bit longer, still and a bit heavier. 326,000, 367,385,000. Um, and as they say, still going up. But of course, that prototype, in fact, wasn't really the original prototype. The aeroplane that we were at quite a long time had a 15% smaller wing than that one. And the prototype that is currently being built was 15% uh, less than that. So really, between the beginning and the initial production batch, we've had four of the development stages that you generally wait until you've built some production aeroplanes before you get at it. But surprisingly enough, um, despite all that, we seem to have uh, got within reasonable reach of making it work. This um, is intended as the follow-on of that. And, uh, <coughs> war, it's a bit longer. And I dare say we'll make it more expensive by things like coke bottling the fuselage. And, uh, get a bit more ginger out of the engines. Very likely stay with about the same sort of wing and resist all temptations to build it until we've sold 250 of those. But it's, it's all very straightforward actually. There's nothing about this aeroplane that you can't read back to any other aeroplane that's ever been built. The mysticism that surrounded it in the early days it was really only to get the salaries of the chaps up who were doing it. It's all just like it always was and everything goes on just like it always did. The numbers are bigger, particularly the cost. And when you're talking about that, you see, and I was yakketing on a moment ago about what's going to go on between now and the year 2000, it's tedious being old because you really um, do understand a few of the things that have gone on in the past and you think you can very likely see from that what's going to go on in the future. But you're not going to be there to do it. Um, 
And it's bad luck in a way that you don't know these things when you're young enough to do it. But on the other hand, it'll be jolly unbalanced if it was any other way. So it'll be interesting to see the way some of the things that one can fairly clearly see, I think, what ought to be done, and you know that you're not going to do them. It was interesting to see the extent to which they either come unstuck or they don't. Now, you see, you take this as a case in point. Now, this isn't, this won't match exactly that with a chart that I showed you with a Qantas thing. Um, and this is London, Sydney, because this doesn't get complicated by pushing up the time due to the subsonic cruise, the overland subsonic cruise. And this is on the basis that there is no subsonic cruise that you don't bother about booms. Because what this is intended to show is that the way shorten the time between London and Sydney, and it obviously goes for any very long-range operation, the way to shorten the time is not to burst your boiler by putting on a bit more Mark number at, at great cost, but to put on a bit more range and uh, reduce the number of stages. Now, I showed you that Qantas thing with four stages. I think the BOAC East About operation would probably have five. And you see, there's the number of hours that it takes and down here is Mach number. And you see, if you go all the way from two and a bit right up to three, and nobody, I think, yet has been very successful in even drawing it, let alone doing it, you don't pick up any more than if you have, instead of five stages, you come down to three and a half. Each one of these stages, you see, represents a saving in time that is the equivalent <coughs> to a very substantial increase in Mark number with all that goes with it. <coughs> and my <coughs> view on this is absolutely uncomplicated. <coughs> I think that if either Europe or the United States decided to embark again on a Mark III transport, <coughs> or if you like, 2.7 using steel and titanium and all that goes with it, uh, they need their heads read. The obvious solution to the problem is to wring the drips out of the basic technology that lies in the Concorde and, and for that matter, the Tupolev philosophy of a high-grade light alloy and go on developing the, <coughs> the drag and the uh, consumption of the engine and so on in order to get further with fewer intermediate stops <coughs> rather than take yourself right down that curve. Now, I don't know whether anybody will take any notice. I tried um, fairly hard to get the message across in the United States. Nothing will happen this year because they have an election on. But something might happen next year. There are some people in the United States who are now beginning to listen I think over there, you see, they can see that uh, a competitive free-for-all situation that gets um, the warm-hearted 
Japanese sending bowls of rice to the inhabitants of Seattle to give them a Merry Christmas. I think they can see that the sort of competition that produces that. And still only gets the airlines running at a loss is not necessarily the right answer. So, maybe in a good many years' time, the basic, um, the basic design philosophy of the Concorde will get itself developed between Europe and the United States in order to produce an aeroplane that has got refinements of the basic theme to enable the stages, the number of stages to be reduced without trying to chase this obvious diminishing return when you start sparring about with Mark numbers of Mark III and a great gleaming red-hot number that nobody even knows how to get right on paper, let alone in iron. Now, all of this so far has been uh, directed at saying, roughly speaking, there is an aircraft industry in the United Kingdom, aerospace, that has done a good job, that has penetrated difficult markets, that has made a big contribution towards the balance of payments, which it is going to have to do again. It has found out how to do collaborative projects with Europe. It has shown that it can get into the United States. There's no reason why it shouldn't spearhead collaborative programs with the United States. Um, there are obvious places in which great developments lay in front of us. Great developments in the vertical takeoff field. Great developments in cashing in on the position that we got on the Concorde. Um, from which you will have gathered that I'm a bit of an optimist. I think that uh, it would also be right to point out and I'm only a bit of an optimist, provided one or two other things get done at the same time. Now, next slide really is totally irrelevant. Um, this was in the Paris Air Show, I don't know, some time ago. There's a Concorde in the back, and the um, Vimy that the apprentices uh, allegedly made in the front and uh, I must say it warms the cockles because the first aeroplanes that I ever got my hands on when uh, I went to Vickers in uh, 37 years ago were Virginias, in fact, which uh, didn't look too much different from that. And in their way, both of those devices were uh, pretty important. But you see... And don't let that distract you, just sit and look at it for a minute because I'm going to natter on with it without talking too much about it for a couple of shakes. The problem that we have in this country has always been that our business is long-term and politics is short-term. Changing governments, every time you get a changing government, they either dig up the ruddy roots and see if it's got any roots or if they need watering or pruning. You bash your way through Aubrey Jones and Duncan Sands in 1960 and through Plowden, now Bob Marshall. 
But we take it all on board with great fortitude and the resilience that has been the trademark of the, of the game. We try to uh, suppress indignation from time to time without too much luck. We know that this two-year period has to be gone through. Every now and again during the two years somebody really uh, pulls a plug out and you can't really uh, get it back in again to stop the water going down. I remember when um, Mr. Wedgwood Ben was invited to the 1967 SBAC dinner, which wasn't uh, too long after he'd been in the saddle. A part of his speech, and I'll quote it, as a result, they came the most hated and feared ministers in government. These were the ministers of aviation. Whilst their colleagues were grateful for anything they could win from the Chancellor, ministers of aviation ran off with sums of money that made the great train robbers look like schoolboys pinching pennies from a blind man's tin. <laughs> now that was his view when he started. Now another minister, or not another minister, but a minister in 1969 said, same government, nobody who has anything to do with the aerospace industry can fail to be excited by it or infected by the enthusiasm of those who work in it. This year, production is expected to reach 535 million and exports 280 million, 52% to be exact. If every industry in the country exported half of its production, we would have no problems at all. This is a truly remarkable growth, which has made a notable contribution to the country's economy, as well as reflecting great credit on the airframe, aero engine, equipment and component manufacturers who work in British aerospace. It wasn't only the same government, it was the same minister. <laughs> so one thing that you have to learn, and when I never come to write my book, I would have devoted the chapter to the minimum period of two years for education. Now I think another thing too, and I have a lot of sympathy for what Victor Rothschild is trying to do with his report. I think that he won't do it unless Fulton gets itself implemented and uh, old Jim Hamilton isn't a lonely swallow, that there are a few more join him uh, up there. I think he won't do it. You see, not even the British can survive ministers drawn from the ranks of the elected representatives and senior officials almost entirely from the classical stream. Great though we are, we can't permanently endure that. It would be all right if all the other nations that we had to do with did it that way, but the rotten lot don't. <laughs> and I see absolutely no reason why they should decide that the way that we do it is better than the way that they do it. And you see, this morning you will no doubt have read about Upper Clyde shipbuilders, but you see, this government thought it was going to indulge in a great bout of disengagement. Now, if you had a real good old look at the things that were written about Upper Clyde when they first said what they were going to do, the things that were written about the RB211 when they first said what they were going to do about that, you will find that they are finding that you can't disengage yourself. Government can't disengage from this sort of a business. It isn't possible. I did a lecture 
up at Oxford some time ago. God knows why they should ask a rough fellow like me up there, but the fact remains they did. And it was devoted to the theme of, of industrial cooperation with industry, and you can't do without it. I hold no brief for Kenneth Galbraith because he was one of the driving forces that killed the American US SST. But in his book, um, The New Industrial State, he spells out loud and clear that governments can't disengage, and the United States government knows that it can't disengage from the things that are going on in its country, including the major things in the aerospace industry. Now, you see, the problem is that by the time anybody knows that the government has made a mistake and dropped a brick, it's too late. If anybody said to me what really was the real trouble on Britain getting into a tangle on the long-range subsonic civil aeroplanes, I would have said the cancellation of the V-1000. Now, it wasn't so much it being cancelled. It took us out of the long-range subsonic business. It was the basis on which it was cancelled. The minister responsible at the time... Um, said in the House of Commons, and I'm reading out of Hansard, in November 1955, at the time, the British Overseas Airways Corporation have made it clear that its requirements for the early 60s are already met by the aircraft it has on order. This was in November 1955, after the cancellation of the V-1000 had been announced. There was a supplementary answer which said that BOAC can hold its own commercially well into the 60s with the Comet 4 and the Long Range Britannia and they placed great emphasis on the superior performance of turbine propelled aircraft compared with jets. After I was asked and remember this is 1955, after I was asked in October 1956 if it was possible to reactivate the V-1000, which had been cancelled within six months of its first flight, the minister who was then responsible stood up in the House of Commons and said that the government were giving BOAC permission to purchase 15 Boeing 707s at a total price of £44 million. And I quote, this was necessary in order that the corporation may hold their competitive position in the North Atlantic route from 1959 to the 1960s. At that time, no suitable British aircraft can be made available for that purpose. The purchase is an exceptional measure to bridge the gap. Now that was within 12 months of a flat-footed statement to say that long-range jets uh, weren't in the business. I don't need to go on into the difference between the decisions about the VC-10 and the comparisons that were made at the time and what in fact has taken place because you're all young enough to remember. What I'm trying to say is that these decisions at the time that they are taken, um, if they get taken wrong, can have repercussions that go on for 30 or 40 years and some of the wrongness of the decisions at the time 
uh, was obvious to the point of being laughable. There are some more sinister sides of this that I don't much enjoy. Uh, I'm not debating about the TSR2, but I didn't much enjoy a senior Treasury official saying to me after it was cancelled, George, old boy, you and I have been friends for a long time, and it fair grieved me to see the fight that you were putting up save it, because we have known for two years that it had to be cancelled. Now, I don't reckon that is a very fair basis uh, on which to get the best out of an industry and the people in it. The best that we know is a hell of a good best. Now, I think that there are a lot of things that have got to be different. And I believe that one of the things that is going to make it different is the movement into collaborative programs. These are hell to do, and anybody who's done one knows it. They're a hell of a job to do, but we've found out how to do it. We know the techniques. We've really learnt, I think, the basic rules of doing it. And I believe that they are going to add a strata of stability. They're going to put a, an iron rod through some of these jelly programs that have not been there before. As I said before, they're a hell of a job to start, but boy, they're almost impossible to stop. So, taken by and large, because their forward program is largely based on, on the, the philosophy of collaborative projects. I think that this industry has got a better forward program for the next 10 or 15 years than at any time since I've been in it. Not necessarily bigger, but better, because the vehicles that it's doing have been hammered out under a a lot of pressure from a lot of people, a lot of the requirements to which they're being built are much more broadly based because they're collaborative than they were before, and I regard the future as optimistic. Now there is one last message that I want to leave with you. It has a bearing on what I said a moment ago about governments disengaging and you can regard this as being completely irrelevant to the main theme of the thing, except that I really am essentially talking about an industry, and because it's an industry in which I work. Now, this is a comical slide to put into this sort of a program, and you may have difficulty in seeing it, and I will, perhaps I'd better trace the salient features of it. And I don't terribly want to comment on this. I just want to leave it with you. And the one thing I must say in advance <coughs> is don't, <coughs> don't, <coughs> don't for God's sake think that I reckon <coughs> that being unemployed is funny because I was trying to start my career <coughs> in the 1930s when it was a hell of a job to get a job. <coughs> on this side... <coughs> 
is percentage of retail prices, <coughs> and that's the black line. On this side, <coughs> there's the war, there's the first war, 1920, there's 1940, there's 1950, there's 1970. That line is unemployment, and these are percentages of unemployment. And just to refresh your memory of those who were there at the time, and to acquaint those who weren't, that line across there is 10% of unemployed. And that point there in the 1930s was 22% of unemployed. So, between the wars, it never really went below 10, and at one stage it went to 22. Prices were stable and almost dropped. Wages showed relatively little increase. Now then, you come to after the war, where the government get into the act and the policy is full employment, and that's what this means, because we're talking about 2 to 2.5% there. And there go wages, and there go prices. Now compare that line with that one, and that line with that one, and that line with that one. Now, you've only got to look at that to see that governments can't disengage. The last thing I'd say about this is everybody's grizzled and groaned about the fact that UK productivity has been bad or non-existent. You know, and productivity is what you get out of each chap. And in 1969, it increased by 3.2%. And in 1970, it increased by 3.3%. Now, for some reason that I don't know, and whether it's associated with that line going up, I don't know. But in the second and third quarters of 1971, it increased at an annual rate of 11.4. And in the first three quarters of 1971, it increased at an annual rate of 8.5. Now, why have I finished on that? Oh, I think to bring everybody after space shuttles and all the rest of the jazz to bring you all back to Earth. Thank you for being so patient. My job is to remind you uh, in the discussion that those who speak from the floor to remind you that uh, the discussion is being recorded would you please announce your name before speaking I have Dr. Hislop uh, I believe would uh, wish to open the discussion President Karen George well gentlemen tonight we have had uh, just a lecture in George's inimitable style of humour interlaced very hard common sense. And on this occasion, of course, there's so many plums and pudding, it's very difficult to pick out which particular ones we'd like to uh, choose. But I think there are one or two things which one sees as being involved, albeit in a smaller 
uh, collaborative program, uh, the sort of helicopters, but in a way rather farther down the road than the ones that have been described. Uh, we in helicopter side are now into the production and the export phase of uh, a collaborative program. And this brings its sort of particular problems. Commercial issues arise and become dominant. There's a question which comes very clearly into one's mind of the um, obsession, one might say, in which one's French colleagues view exports. We had a time a year or two back, and this may be related to the balance of payment situation, when we had a slogan here, export and die. Uh, in the last year or two, it hasn't been quite expressed that way. It's been uh, not export at any price, but export at the right price. The French, I think, uh, view them in the export for die view, so we're a bit afraid. Which is the right one, I don't know. But it does mean, and what it does say to us, if in these collaborative programs we're going to get our proper share of what is going on, there's a lot of fighting ahead on a different battleground. From the technical battleground and the production one. And this is something which um, also leads one to the other uh, point which the draw throughout is the difference of the officials and the particularly in French agencies that one comes into contract is the training that leads to be uh, uh, quite different from what has been referred to as the traffic stream which is common in the administrative people in this country. And one is struck by the what I could almost say, the different kind of professionalism which is existed in the many of the uh, uh, French civilian administrative agents compared with their counterparts in the UK. This may sound hard, but there is, a, I think there are lessons to be learned. They have a different form of, uh, different form of training. They seem to come up a different way, and certainly the results are very good indeed. And we should study those and see whether adapted to the British methods we couldn't uh, help ourselves to a bit more muscle power which is going to be needed. I, well, I don't know, there's a, a great deal to talk about. I think that last slide, of course, is the experience of dealing and uh, what is a right and proper level to hold uh, prices steady and maintain on contested position. Which is better socially? Is it better to have an inflation problem with uh, less unemployment. There's nobody who's ever lived through the 30s, at least of all in Christ's house that I did, you'll ever forget it. It's something you never, never forget. And in fact, it makes in one's life. So there's a, there's, a, there's a balance somewhere, and I wouldn't pretend that I'm wise enough to say quote about that wise. It's something different from what we had a few years ago, and certainly not anything like so excessive as what we had before the war. And one of the reasons why today the government, in fact, had to allow 30 million pounds to uh, upper slide was because the people on upper slide remembered it that And they just weren't going to give up. And in the end, they got away. I think that, um, out of all the other many points which uh, came to light, I think these issues on uh, the training and the leadership, the problems of collaborative programs, it's very true indeed that the programs are hard to start 
the telehealth doctor said, undoubtedly, the recommendation of the world, and when one stands back and looks at the processes which achieved, it's quite remarkable, really. You say, well, uh, what are we today? We're going back to France or something. But it's four years since we began, and we're there. And in the, the uh, British Air Space team on our own in the 50s and 60s, we know quite well we never got to that point, because the program was probably going to about in any way. So, I think all I can say is that, as in so many things, um, and like to give myself, I think one agrees with the ladies' part, and I'm very happy indeed to have had the opportunity of opening this spending discussion. I think you're expert or die now and every day, every day of the week. There's no debate about this, you just go on and if you slacken and you lose the market that the French and others get into, they're lost forever and you never can leave off Napoleon did a lot of things his formation of the Grand Ecole particularly Polytechnique was the training ground for which these chaps, from which they emerged and I got a soft spot for old Napoleon because he said a lot of sensible things, one of which was that the British were a nation of lions led by asses Following on what's just been said by um, my friend George Hislop about the uh, difference in quality of uh, top people in France on the administrative side <coughs> and what uh, Sir George has said about governments can't disengage. I wonder if he would venture a view on um, how we can set ourselves more competitively in this very difficult administrative area. I was going almost to say, would he suggest retraining the programs? But that perhaps is carrying it too far. However, uh, from what uh, John Hizzard said, and from carrying this point that governments must, cannot disengage, doesn't that mean that um, everyone <coughs> in the government sphere, political, administrative, or technological, must be fully engaged? which means to say that they must be able to uh, enter into these collaborative programs with uh, conviction about what they work and with a, uh, an ability to uh, see the thing through. I'd be very glad if uh, you would it on that. Well, I think that, um, and maybe I exaggerated it, uh, but not much, when I said that we couldn't go on in, uh, with a structure in which the ministers were drawn from the ranks of the elected representatives and the senior civil servants almost entirely from the classical stream. You see, I have seen ministers um, taking on um, the Secretary of State for Defence in the United States uh, who have not been drawn from the ranks of the elected representatives. Um, if there's a bloke over there that the president thinks is the right sort of chap to run a very big, powerful department, 
he has the freedom to go and get him. He doesn't have to be elected at the hustings and make all sorts of fiery speeches, which he subsequently doesn't have to live up to. Uh, ministers uh, in other countries are not uh, itinerant positions, uh, itinerant politicians who for a short time occupy a minister's armchair. They're quite often chaps who have had a great deal of training uh, in the business and the trade close enough to, 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 to the game that we're indulged in at least that they don't have to have two sorts of interpreter at least they understand the, tec the technical language now you see you could probably get away with that if um, the implementation of the Fulton report which when all said and done Fulton was set up to deal with this situation this is what it was all about to, to make uh, a real assessment of what ought to be done about the civil service and if the Fulton report were properly implemented and the implications of it were really carried through and you didn't stop at one depth sec in the form of Jim Hamilton having been drawn from the technical branch, you might then be able to do with the ministers if you've got a strong enough top layer of the civil service commensurate with what you quite often find in France. You could then do uh, with ministers who to a large extent were politicians. The thing I think you can't do with is both. Now, I think that the, 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 a wholehearted implementation of Fulton would be the right way round it. And I think the antagonism to a lot of what's in Rothschild has really been stimulated by the fact that the scientists don't want to do with chaps in executive departments who don't understand the language. Now, you know, we know all about chief scientists and this sort of thing, but this isn't the name of the game. The name of the game is the perm sec. He is the chief accounting officer. He is the chap who has to carry the can back. Now, something has to be done um, to provide a flock of sparrows, of which at the moment Jim Hamilton is one. Maybe I ought to be more elegant and call him swallows, or hopefully hawks. And all that has to be done is the proper implementation of Fulton and when the Fulton report came out and it showed that there was a recommendation that was going to open the ranks of the civil service if it was really carried uh, the, the, the noise of the perm sacks closing their ranks was no sonic boom that the Concord's ever done was able to equal it So in my short time as a child officer at Boston Down I have observed that at times the aspirations for a weapon system of the operators um, does not always reconcile exactly with the practical facts I see displayed before my eyes when the aircraft actually flies and falls. Would you care to comment on the number of occasions in times past on very promising projects uh, where these projects have unfortunately foundered because those who require uh, things to be inserted, uh, added and so on at various stages have become so excessive that this has priced the system out of the market completely and also killed it on a time scale. <coughs> I can remember the HS681 I think it was which was a short stroke vertical takeoff transport being cancelled <coughs> and the user apparently being satisfied with the Hercules um, 
I can think of lots of cases where the initial requirement um, was very, um, very severe and very difficult to meet. Um, and you know, it's like everything else in life. And this is where I think that you've always had to specialise in something to really... Uh, I think before you can deal successfully in breadth, at some stage in your career, you've had to have gone very deep, even though it's on a narrow front, and specialised in something. And that uh, shows you that getting 85% of anything is fairly easy. And you can produce a sort of an average broad brush solution to most things that get you 85% without straining yourself. Getting 90% is, is pretty difficult. And getting 95% is jolly nearly impossible. And the last five is absolute hell and high water. Generally speaking, the last five in writing a requirement um, is, is quite uh, extravagant as far as the cost and the time scale of the thing is concerned. And I think we've all seen projects, and I could think of half a dozen, and I think of the TSR too, without any trouble at all, in which the pressure on the requirement for the device to carry everything uh, on God's earth and do, do it without a runway. Um, this was a bit of a trick and resulted in the cost going up and the thing being cancelled. Then, you see, when the job was entrusted to the Americans to do, and let's face it, that gang at Fort Worth were never more than a decent second-class team, um, the same thing happened there, you see. It was just too difficult. 